With that said, let's uh, crack open Matthew 13. We're there already. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the Bible study. Father, as we uh, open up your word, we just freshly acknowledged this morning that it is, in fact, your word. It is not ours to determine what we agree with and don't agree with. It's just ours to submit our minds and our hearts to what you say. We present ourselves like Isaiah. Lord, here we are. Send us. Lord, here we are. Teach us. We just confess in humility, Lord, that we know nothing in and of ourselves. That we have received lies and many, many wrong messages. And finally, Lord, having found you, you're sorting things out in our minds. And you're transforming us by the renewing of our minds. And life is changing. And your word is powerful and living. And I pray that this morning, this would not just be the hearing of a Bible study, but that these words would be mixed with faith in the hearers, Lord, and it would be profitable. Here we are, Lord. Speak to us, your servant hears. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen and Amen. We are uh, diligently, meticulously, and and, uh, methodically making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, the biography of the king, and Jesus is that. He's a king. He's not an earthly king. It's not speaking of an earthly realm. It's a spiritual kingdom. It transcends borders and geography. It's all over the world. And we're part of that. Those of us that are saved believers in Jesus Christ, we have made him our king personally. And we're just seeing his story. He's teaching us about his kingdom. We know what, you know, America, the place where we can pursue life, liberty, and happiness. The kingdom operates under different sets of of standards, different sets of rules than an earthly kingdom might. And here we are learning from Jesus what those things are. And he's teaching them now in parables, in natural stories that have spiritual comparisons. And today we're going to do the parable of the dragnet, the last of the kingdom parables about a fishing net, which is so appropriate because he was speaking to a group of guys that some of them were fishermen. And it's so great when you when you meet a teacher and when you when you when you experience a teaching where the teacher is just able to make that clear to you and has put it in some kind of uh, framework that you can understand that I was sitting with someone from the fellowship uh, just Friday that was works for the rescue squad and we were it was just great because we were able to talk about the things of heaven in terms of the rescue squad something we were both very familiar with and make those truths just come right to the forefront and so now he's speaking to fishermen about fishing couldn't be simpler couldn't be easier God wants you to get it he wants you to understand he doesn't try to hide his truth in parables Here's why parables are effective. Because in the parables, Jesus Christ is shining the light of the truth. The light is shining, period. That's what light does. Light shines, right? Say yes. Yes, light shines. We know that. But you live in a house, and your house has curtains and shades. And if you want your house to be brighter, 
you have to lift up the shades and let the light in. If you keep the shades down, your house is going to remain dark. Whether or not you let the light in is up to you. And that's the power of these parables. The light is shining. Whether or not people want to let that light in is up to them. Some will open the shade, let the light in. Others will not. So the parable of the dragnet, Matthew chapter 13, verse 47 Jesus says again, because again, this is about the seventh parable of the kingdom. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. Be a real fish fry. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. What is the kingdom like? Well, it's like a fishing net. Now, a number of years ago, uh, we went for a family fishing trip, a little offshore fishing, and we all used fishing poles. And it was a real blast. I mean, it was a real blast. Some of the things we caught weren't really eating fish, weren't fish that you would keep and eat or would be useful. So we caught them. And we tossed them back. Other fish we kept uh, and we ate. It was really kind of satisfying, kind of a, a great family trip. These guys, uh, what Jesus is telling them is, is something uh, about fishing in a way that they're more used to, the commercial fishing way. We use the, the single line and the single pole and catch one fish at a time. When you're a commercial fisherman, you use a great big net. Now, the net they would use would be attached between two boats and the front part of it would have floats on it. The, bottom, the back part of it would have weights on it. So it would kind of drag through the water. And the intention was to catch the, a whole school of fish, not just one fish. So they'd drag that thing through the water to catch that school of fish. And then they'd bring it out on the, uh, on the, the shore. And then they'd have to sort out which fish, you know, because there's an old shoe in there, a tire or whatever else you might find. I don't think they found tires, chariot wheel or whatever they might have come across. <laughs> Jesus would have to explain the tire. That comes later. <laughs> so the dragnet, the fishing net itself is indiscriminatory. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't choose. The net has no will of its own. It just catches whatever's in its path, right? And then once the catch is made, then the fishermen has to sort through. Remember, they were Jews. So there's only certain fish they could eat at, at anyway. So they'd have to sort through what the catch was throw out the fish that were too small or the ones that were already dead or, or the ones that weren't kosher. They'd throw all those out and the ones that were good, they would keep. And that's what they would use to sell at the market or to eat. And that's what Jesus is saying the kingdom is like. He's speaking about the end of the age. So we know sort of what this parable is about. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. Circle that word end. Because in the Greek, you know what that means? That means end. It means at the end of the age. Right? Because no doubt, what would they have been expecting? I mean, just like you and I, we want change. We want it yesterday. We want someone who can take leadership of this country and do away with all the corruption, take care of all the bad people and the wickedness in politics, and that they can straighten this thing out now. Lord, sort stuff out now. That's what we want. But Jesus says, I'm going to sort it out. But it won't be till then. It's going to be later. And I thank God for that. I thank God for that because here's why. 
we know that there will be a sorting out. And sometimes our hearts cry out for that, don't they? Lord, there's this mix of people on the face of the earth. Even in the church, there's a mixture of people. There's the mixed multitude. And sometimes the, the, we get hurt and sometimes things happen and we try, Lord, we just wish you'd sort this all out now. Get rid of all those bad people in church. Of course, we qualify ourselves as with the good, you know, we're all good fish. They're the bad fish. And it comes later. And I thank God that he says the, the long suffering of the Lord is salvation. That God is long-suffering means he's got a very long fuse. He's very patient so that none will have to perish. That's God's heart. God's heart is that he will wait and he will wait and he will wait so that some of those bad fish might become good fish and might be saved, might be kept from the fire, from the fish fry. That's the heart of God. That's why he says it's going to be at the end of the age. And then again, notice it says the angels will come forth. Remember, Jesus Christ didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't come to, he wasn't going, all right, I'm going to get all you bad little fish. I'm going to, I'm, that's who I'm after so I can fry you. That's not what he wants. He, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. You see, the gospel is like this big net and it is gathering in people people from all over the place not just people like you and me see again in the fish net there were some of how many kinds every kind in this gospel net in the kingdom net there's some of every kind there's black and white and hispanic and indian and all the different races there's wealthy and there's poor there's beggars there's crippled there's lame there's lepers all these being caught in this net there is jew and this is what's radical and gentile there are Romans being caught in the net. They're not, there's a centurion that's caught in the net of the, of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn. I came so that the world might be saved. And so again, it's at the end of the age where the angels will come forth and separate out from among the just. They'll separate the wicked. Out from among. Now, are we at the end of the age yet? Is it the end of the age? Is, there, is, is God separating out the, the just from the wicked right now? Say no. No. So that means the net is still drawing people in. And you may be here this morning. Again, I don't know all of you. I know many of you. But maybe you're some that just, you're being caught right now in the net. You're hearing the gospel. Maybe for the first time you're hearing about God's patience in waiting for you. Waiting for you specifically. So that's the good news that, hey, the net is still gathering in people. Still might gather in that, that uh, son or daughter that's been in rebellion. Still gather in those neighbors or that, that very fishy boss you have. Still could be gathered in and kept. The net is still gathering people. But it's at the end of the age, then God will separate out, not the Catholics from the Baptists or the, you know, everybody else from Calvary Chapel. That's not how the delineation is made, is it? What's the one delineation that will matter at the end of the age, at the time of judgment? Wicked or just? We'll talk about that in a minute. That's the only, doesn't matter what your denominational um, sentiments are. You don't say, I'm a Baptist. That won't get you anywhere. You don't say, oh, we went to Calvary Chapel. 
We know Chuck Smith. Or None of that stuff is going to matter. What's going to matter is, are you counted as wicked or are you counted as just? Now, this is a very, because I thought about this. I was like, well, am I a catcher? Am I a keeper or am I going to be thrown away? Am I going to be cast into the furnace of fire? And that's a good question for you. Will you be? Are you a keeper? And how do you know? Because the Bible says the, the word just is also the word translated righteous. And the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. So if that was true, and if that was true at the end of the age, then he'd have to throw away the whole catch because they're all fishy. They're all, none of them are good. Unless there's something else to do with being just. If you like to take notes, you can write Romans 5, verse 1. Don't go there now. I'll just tell you. Romans 5, verse 1, that says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, not by my works, not by my church attendance or my denominational affiliation or my tithing record or my Sunday school attendance, having been justified by faith. All of those things may be demonstration of your faith. I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So how do I become just? Let's just talk one minute. This is a little bit technical, but I want to make sure you get it. We went over this this morning with the Sunday school teachers. Uh, O.J. Simpson was on trial a number of years ago. He was found not guilty. And then he was, the judicial word is acquitted. He was acquitted, which means he was found not guilty and let go. But you and I, in the courtroom of heaven, we were not acquitted. Were we found not guilty? No, we were found what? Guilty. We were found guilty. So what do you do with that? I'm found guilty, but see, I'm justified by faith. You've tried to justify yourself before. I know you. I've done it. We do something wrong, but then we try to explain why we shouldn't be treated because of what we did, because there was a reason we did it. And that's called justifying yourself. You try to justify your actions. Well, I know I lied, but here's why I did it. Or I know I did that, because, but here's why I had, I had to do that. And we justify ourselves. And what we say when we, get, when we try to justify ourselves, what we're saying is, I know I'm guilty, but I want you to treat me as innocent. Right? Are we together on that? So to be justified is to be found guilty, but treated as innocent. And that's what happened to you. You were found guilty, but God doesn't deal with you as guilty. He deals with you as innocent. So then the next thing you say is, that's not fair. That's not fair because we know guilty people should be punished. We know that in the court. If a guilty person is brought before the judge, we know you're a murderer. But I don't feel like treating you uh, as a murderer. We're going to treat you as a not murderer, so you can go free. I mean, the, the family would just be in an uproar about that. But here's the thing. In God's court system, he allows a substitute. It's the only court system in the universe that allows that. So he can be both just and merciful at the same time. He has mercy on us, but here's the thing. That substitute can't be carrying their own penalty themselves. You see, I might say, well, you know what, Judge Brad Halfacre here, I know Brad. I like, Brad's a good guy. You know, he's made a few mistakes in life, but, you know, he's a good guy. Let me take his punishment. The judge would say, what's your name? Fedden, F-E-D-E-N, Fedden. He'd say, uh, you're on the docket. Next, you're also guilty. <laughs> 
you got your own crime to, to pay for. You can't take his, You can't have his death penalty. You've got your own. So there's one person that lived a perfect life who is the only one that can then take your penalty to justify uh, your, for, to be the justification for you, to be the satisfaction of your crime, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that qualifies. Your parents don't qualify. Chuck Smith doesn't qualify. I don't qualify. I'm serving. I got my own crimes to pay for, uh, again, in the, in the court system. So to be justified is to be found guilty, but yet then treated as innocent, and God can still be just in doing that because the, pun- the penalty is then paid, but just not by you. It's paid by Jesus Christ on your behalf, credited to your account, so you can go free. Does that make sense? I just want to make sure we understand that because um, if you're sitting here and you're going, well, how do I know if I am going to be a keeper or not at, that a- at the end of the age? If you rest your hope fully on the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by believing, you're saved. Simple, isn't it? Simple. He will cast the wicked, take them out from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. One more quick note here before we move on. I did a little study on gnashing of teeth this week. It's always compelled me. Six times in Matthew, one time in Luke, Jesus uses this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the gnashing of teeth, we see it in the book of Acts, when Stephen preaches a very troubling sermon to those listening. And they gnash their teeth at him, and they attack him. Do you remember that story? In the Old Testament, gnashing of teeth was always coupled with anger at an opponent with a desire to destroy that opponent. That's when you would find them gnashing their teeth. It's sort of like snarling animals that are devouring the prey. You've seen that on National Geographic or the Animal Planet or something like that. You see these, these hyenas around a dead gazelle and, or lions, and they are snarling and gnashing their teeth while they devour the prey. And it just got me thinking about hell and the gnashing of teeth. I think the wailing has to do with the, the sense of sorrow for missing out on the blessing. And I think, again, if you look at this parallel story in Luke, I think what you'll find is the gnashing of teeth will be just the continued of a self-centered lifestyle that then becomes angry at those that receive the blessing even though you didn't i'm not going to say take that to the bank it's just based on the sort of the the biblical meaning of the word i think that's going to be the greatest hell just an eternal bitterness not just that you missed out but even bitter at the people that that received the blessing you remember esau in the Old Testament, he gave away his, his birthright. He gave away his blessing for a pot of temporary stew. And then when it came time for the blessing to be conferred, his father conferred the blessing on Jacob, and Esau was very upset. He said, bless me also. I mean, I want a blessing too. Esau was the quintessential fleshy man, carnal man. Oh, bless me too, Dad. I want a blessing too. Dad said, I've only got one. And he was, he was uh, weeping because he couldn't get the blessing too. He didn't repent, we find out in Hebrews 12. Instead of repenting, he just got angry. He got angry at who? Jacob. He got angry at Jacob and decided he wanted to kill Jacob. Remember Cain and Abel? First 
murder in the Bible. God said to Cain, look, Cain, if you do right, you'll be accepted also. But instead, what did Cain do? He got mad at Abel and murdered him. So uh, I I think there is a selfishness, a self-centered focus that will continue for those that reject God. Only one thing, the temporary, not concerned with the eternal until they're there at the time of judgment at the end of the age when they're confronted with being taken out from among the just, cast out. And I think there will be a wailing and gnashing of teeth, just as the Bible says. So Jesus says to them, verse 51, have you understood all these things? They said to him, "Uh, yes, Lord. I mean, were they scared to say, could you go over that again? My dad used to have a cartoon in his office that I've always forget. Remember Frank and Ernest, the cartoon, like a one frame cartoon. And it was a huge light switch, like a huge toggle switch on the wall, and the one guy was sort of the, the director, the instructor, and he had, it said, on, off. And the guy says, could you run through that again? I always liked that cartoon. And sometimes I picture the disciples like that, you know, on, kingdom, not the kingdom. Could you run through that again? We're trying to get this. But they say to him, yes, Lord, we get it. Whether they really got it, that's questionable. But so based on the fact that they say they got it, Jesus says, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Every scribe, now a scribe is a professional paid teaching position. These guys were the professional teachers of Israel. And they knew their stuff, sort of. Jesus rocked their world. And he says to the disciples, If you're understanding what I'm telling you, then you're like a scribe or a professional teacher instructed truly in the kingdom of heaven. And it's like a householder, a person that owns a house, has some old treasures, has some antiques, and some new stuff. The old and the new. And you bring out both of them together. They work together, these treasures. Because some of you have been to churches and says, well, now, since Jesus has come, we've got the New Testament. Well, we don't really need the Old Testament. So we at our church, we don't bother wasting our time studying Leviticus. Are you kidding me? Those are old treasures. You can't just get rid of those. But what happens is you understand them now differently when you read it in the context of the life of Jesus. The disciples were on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus reveals himself to them and and he opens up the scriptures to them. Moses and the prophets And he teaches them all things concerning what? Himself. Himself. What was concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New. And so the the things of the Old are so important. The Passover. Moses and his life and Cain and Abel and all through the important stories. Don't neglect those. Look, as a church, every Wednesday night we're going through the Old Testament down at Common Ground, other, other Bible studies, going through, those are so, when you see the whole picture, the entirety of your word, David said in Psalm 119, is truth. But now these guys are given a different perspective and now they can bring out and they understand how, how the Old Testament works in light of who Jesus is and what he's doing. So, that's what he calls them to do. Don't, if someone tells you you don't need the Old Testament, walk away. Tell them thank you very much. I've heard enough.
Verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. From where is there? There is Capernaum. He was teaching in the, the home city of Peter and Andrew and James and John. And he was wildly successful there. And crowds were gathering. People were coming. There were healings happening. Uh, I mean, just a lot of uh, crowd you know, that was involved. Multitudes were interested. The Pharisees were not, but many were. And so now Jesus departs from there. And when he had come to where his own country, he goes home. To Nazareth. Certainly he would be successful if he was successful in Capernaum where no one knew him. Man, where he's known, definitely he ought to be well received, right? Let's see what happens. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished, blown away. I mean, blew a gasket in their mind and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So they heard him teaching, and they were just absolutely, literally struck out of their senses like they got knocked out. And then not only that, they saw him do mighty works. We don't know what he did. It's not recorded. Were were they healings? What type of miracles were they? He did mighty works. And they saw this stuff, and look at their response. Verse 55, and we're going to be very familiar with this. Is this not the carpenter's son? derogatory term i think the carpenter's son like i don't know if joseph was the only one in nazareth at the time or maybe what was a prominent one i don't i don't think so personally uh, but nonetheless they say hey isn't this guy the carpenter's son and look at this is not his mother called mary i mean we know mary that young girl and his brothers james josie simon and judas Notice, Jesus had brothers and sisters. His sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? This is really, I think if we could really open our minds to understand this, I think it's a little bit humorous in some ways, their response. Number one, recognize this, Jesus had, had siblings. So some of you have learned about the perpetual virginity of Mary. We don't know, some say these were Joseph's children from another marriage maybe. We don't know. All we do know is that Jesus had uh, brothers and sisters. They were younger, but they were his brothers and sisters. So it challenges that thinking. But the thing that gets me about this passage is they almost seem to be looking at Jesus' family and Jesus himself going, not only is this guy a nobody, I mean, when at the first high school of, of Nazareth, Jesus did not you know, receive the superlative of, you know, uh, most likely to lead a world kingdom. That was not his, it was not in the yearbook. Uh, most likely to be God in the flesh. Because he glowed all the time, you know. We just knew he was God. Just knew there was something special about that guy. He was not most likely to succeed. Uh, they didn't say, man, we always knew he'd be great. I think he, he was just plain and ordinary. He didn't stand out, despite what the Gospel of Thomas, these Gnostic and heretical Gospels say, that Jesus did all these miracles as a kid. If you read those things, you can, you can see that. Some, of the, some false Gospels say that Jesus you know, made pigeons out of clay and, you know, prayed a, and they turned into real pigeons. And, but if, they, if he did that, they'd have known this guy was some, something special was about him. I don't think he did any of that. 
I don't think he, and I don't think his family was a family of high achievers either. They were connected to David, yes, by lineage, from a spiritual standpoint. But I think from a human standpoint, that's why I think, look, is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Josie, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? I mean, we can look at his family, folks, and see that this guy ain't going nowhere in life. Any of you feel like that? Sometimes you look at your family and you go, man, what a bum deal I got. I'll just remind you, they got you too, but that's another story. We didn't have a choice as to what family we were born into. And some of you think that because you were born into a certain family in a certain place, that you're locked in, you're never going to be anything because of where you were born and the family you were born into. Jesus understands that. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. And that's why... His life gives us such good news that God shows us how he takes nobodies and makes them somebodies. And that's, what he, and that's the whole thing with Jesus. I mean, you remember Gideon? I, I think Gideon demonstrates this truth right here as well. The angel of the Lord came and sat under a terebinth tree uh, to, to, comes to Gideon and appears to him and says, Gideon, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. I mean, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press because there's no wind there. You need wind. So he's hiding. And God says, Gideon, get up, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon looks around like somebody else has got to be around here because he can't be talking to me. Gideon said, hey, if the Lord is with us, if the Lord is with me, then why have all these things happened? Where are all these miracles? that we've heard about in the past. Didn't the Lord bring us out of Egypt? I mean, where, where, why isn't that happening now to deliver us from the hands of our current enemy? And the Lord turned to him, and I'll paraphrase, and said, Gideon, you are my miracle. He said, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now, if Gideon had graduated from the Israeli school of military might, one might say, well, certainly we'd expect that. Of course, who better to choose than Gideon? I mean, of course, it's obvious. He's six foot 11 and 755 pounds of mass, and he knows how to use a sword, of course. But what does Gideon say? He says, God, wait a second, God, you, you've, got, you've got this wrong. He said to him, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. God, you've got the wrong guy. You not only have got the wrong family, you're not only in the wrong pew, but the wrong church altogether. I'm the, my family is the weakest family. And I wonder if Joseph's family would have been considered in Nazareth, which was already a podunk town. Yeah. Can anything good come out of Nazareth or Palmyra or wherever you want to you say? You know, I mean, we're just... When Gail Irwin came, he heard he was coming to Fluvanna. He didn't even know how to pronounce it. Where's Fluvanna, you know? Can anything be good, be good happening in Fluvanna? Don't even know what that means. But man, good stuff is happening in Fluvanna, isn't it? Yeah. Amen. I, I think Joseph's family was not very well respected. I don't think his family was high achievers. And I, I think that of their family, Jesus may have been looked at as probably, even though he was the oldest, maybe, uh, probably not very well respected. That fits, doesn't it? Because God says through Paul, look at your own calling, Christian. Look at your own life. 
You don't see many of among you who are wise according to this world's judgment. Any Yale graduates in here? Harvard? Just out of curiosity. Me neither. Okay, good. Um, nor many of the ruling class, nor many from the noblest families. There are some occasionally, but few. But God has chosen what the world calls foolish to shame the wise. He has chosen what the world calls weak to shame the strong. He has chosen things of little strength and small repute. Yes, and even things which have no real existence to explode the pretensions of the things that are, that no man may boast in the presence of God. And I think that was the testimony of Jesus Christ. That he was... And so did it work? Did he... Let's look at verse 57. Where then did he get these things? I mean, we can't figure this out. So they were offended at him. They were stumbled by him. It was scandalous. Have you ever found that to be true? You go home. He goes on to say, look at verse 50, uh, well, the end of verse 57. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. The hardest place to evangelize is among those that know you the best. Hard sometimes to receive from someone who's close to you. Uh, You guys know my story and and sharing uh, God with my own father. And very hard for a father to receive from a son as if somehow I've become more wise than my father. But in Christ, the Bible says, because I have the word of God, I am wiser than all my teachers, Psalm 119 says. Not only that, I am wiser than all the ancients, all the old wisdom. If you have Christ, if you know the word of God, you're wiser than your teachers, kids. Don't tell them that. Guess what we learned in church today, Mrs. So-and-so? I'm wiser than you. Don't say that. I'll get in big trouble. But sometimes people look at you and where you've come from and they say, who do you think you are to be telling us how to get to heaven, to be telling us spiritual things? And that's no doubt what they were saying to Jesus. And it really stumbled them. It was really a wrench in the works for them And they didn't believe. They didn't believe. Have you had that problem in your family? I mean, is that something you guys have struggled with? Sometimes family, man, they know you. And and we've messed up. Jesus never messed up. But they just didn't count what he had to say as worth very much. And they don't count. Your parents still have pictures, you know, naked bathtub pictures of you. And they, they know who you were. They know what you did. They know you weren't real smart when you were growing up. You know, you didn't accomplish a whole lot. You you were just lazy or whatever it might be. Not a whole lot of expectations. And now all of a sudden, you become a Christian. You go to school. You go to church in some high school, and you think you you figured out what the world is all about. I mean, who do you think you are telling us? Where where are your mom and dad? I I changed your diapers. And you're going to tell me that unless I am born again, I'm not going to go to heaven? And, And it can be a real stumbling block, can't it? I'm with you. I mean, we struggle with these things. So they didn't believe uh, that the, the saying comes true. By the way, this verse, uh, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, in his own house. I make Helga and the kids memorize that. Not really. I don't really. Verse 58, let's move on. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's an important verse to end on. And it really strikes a chord in my own heart. He did a few things. 
healed a couple of people, laid hands on them, and healed them, we learn, in, in uh, Mark, I believe. But not much. There was a little bit happening. It was sort of a little going on with Jesus, but not much. Was it because he was mad at them? Or because he, he said, I'll show you. You don't believe who I am, won't receive. I'll, I'm not going to do any miracles here. That'll show you. Nah, 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 nah. You know, all his high school buddies. Is that why he did it? No, it was because of their, not because of his frustration. Jesus doesn't minister out of his own frustration. He did it because of their unbelief, because of their unbelief. So is the opposite true also? If they believe, would Jesus have done more? You think? Say yes if you think yes. Yeah, I think so too. And so here's the difficulty. And I think it's even true in this fellowship. I mean, I've seen a lot of tremendous things happen in our fellowship. But I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there yet. I think that Jesus Christ not only needs to set people free from their sinful nature and their sinful lifestyles, I think he needs to set the church free from low expectations. That's just a personal... I think this church would would be part of that, this fellowship. I think we come to church and we have low expectations of what we will experience of God. The word always leads, but the word leads to experiences. If you didn't actually experience anything, then you'd really wonder if what anything that was said was really true. The Bible, the word of God leads, faith comes next, and then experience. And so here's my challenge for us, for this group. Is Jesus not doing more among us because of unbelief? When's the last time you were sick or someone in your family was sick sick enough to go to the doctor but not sick enough to call for the elders to lay hands on to pray well why don't we need the elders we have the doctor i just call the doctor i go down he gives me a few pills everything's fine you see how low our expectations can be when the bible says if anyone is sick let him call for the elders wow we don't want to bother the elders bother us please bother us Pray for one another so that you may be healed, the Bible says. But again, I think we get low expectations. As just someone had given me a book about a church on the West Coast that's experiencing lots of miracles. And the first thing we do, we read that and we, we want to write it off, right? Well, somehow that they're not really true stories or they're embellished or whatever the case might be. And what I began to realize as the Lord began to work on my own heart about this is that I think God is drawing people there because, and God is, and we're seeing things happen there because people go expecting. Someone else received a healing there. Someone else received a transformed life there. there that church was used as an instrument of God. People believed. And they began to invite their friends. Hey, you got to come down to this church because people are getting healed there. And they say, really? Maybe I could get healed there. Yeah, I bet you could. Come on. And so they come with faith in their heart, expecting, and guess what they get? They get what they expect. Now, again, I'm not, this is, you know, I'm not saying everybody uh, gets, gets the physical healing. That's not what I'm saying. And they, experience, they don't experience that every time either. But do we ever expect that? Is, is this a fellowship where people are hearing of our faith? Or just our love? Love is good. Love is important. But there's faith and there's hope and there's love. And so I want to encourage this fellowship today. It was Hudson Taylor that said, attempt great things for the Lord, 
and expect great things from the Lord. I want us as a church to be expecting God to do what he says he's going to do. And our job is not to, we're not in charge of results. We're in charge of just obeying through faith, right? So the verse is there in red and white for you to read and see that in that place where Jesus, where they didn't believe him, they didn't take him at his word, he couldn't do much. The spirit was being quenched there. So my question to Calvary Chapel flew down this morning, are we quenching the spirit? Are there things we say we believe, but we don't really act on it? We don't really do according to what we believe? So the question comes is, do we really believe it or not? And how would it change the life of this fellowship if we really began to believe these things and act on them? I don't know. I'd love to see it, though, wouldn't you? As Phil uh, comes up, we're going to close with a, a song and... I just spend a few minutes praying um, about these things. Uh, Number one thing to think about as we close, um, have you uh, taken care of in your life peace with God? If I ask you the question, hey, do you have peace with God? You might say, yes, I do, Pastor. I know I'm saved by God's grace through faith. Or you might say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Or you might say, no, I don't have peace with God. And today might be the day of salvation. Today's the day to hear the message and to mix it with faith and rest your your hope fully on the grace of God and not on your own abilities or your own works or your own whatever, your membership. Or maybe it's your family that you need to pray for right now, that you've been, you're the only Christian you're like the oasis, the Christian oasis in a very ungodly home. And you know what? You're just not being received and it's been frustrating to you. And it's been very discouraging to you. Don't give up. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Don't push it or force it. Just be who you are. Just be who you are in Christ. God will sort it out. And we thank God that he's long-suffering, right? So that our children, our parents, our friends, our co-workers, our teammates, or whatever else it might be, our classmates, the gospel net is still drawing them in. Some of every kind. Every kind. I love it. I love it. And a challenge today to examine yourself. as the truth project says do you really believe that what you really believe is really true or something like that